Book of Mormon Prophecy, a podcast series by Avraham Gileadi, Ph.D. 23. A Decreed Utter Destruction Could Isaiah's prophecies of an utter destruction upon the whole earth be fulfilled in our day? Does Book of Mormon history illustrate what that looks like? Welcome to podcast number 23, A Decreed Utter Destruction. Now we know that the Earth's present cycle has to come to an end. There is a cutoff point at which all celestial people, those who haven't repented in time, must go somewhere else. Because the Earth itself is continuing in its cycle of progression from telestial to terrestrial and eventually to celestial. So this is nothing new. It's something the Lord had ordained from the foundation of the world. The purpose of the earth being to exalt the earth and its people, its inhabitants, those who covenant with the Lord and those who get their acts together and keep his commandments and are eventually not only saved but also exalted. And the utter destruction that's coming that the Lord has decreed upon the earth is also part of a two-sided great and marvelous work, as we've seen before, that the great and marvelous work that the Lord performs has two sides to it, the deliverance aspect, but also the destruction, deliverance of his elect and the righteous souls of the world, but also the destruction of the wicked, all the others, all the rest. So we're going to go to some Isaiah passages that are quoted in the Book of Mormon. I won't keep citing the references each time, but I can cite some of them. Isaiah chapter 10, verses 22 and 23, quoted in 2 Nephi 10. Destruction is decreed. And the Lord says to his people Israel, Though your people Israel shall be as the sands of the sea, only a remnant will return. And the word return, of course, is also the word for repent in Hebrew. So only a remnant will repent. And if they repent, they will indeed return from their scattered and lost and fallen state. And he goes on to say, Although annihilation is decreed, and we know it's from the foundation of the world, it shall overflow with righteousness because the Lord is going to make provision for the righteous people to be delivered out of the destruction. For the Lord, Jehovah of hosts, will carry out the utter destruction decreed upon the whole earth. So it's a worldwide destruction of which past destructions of God's people or of other nations are a type and shadow. And that's why we have the Old Testament and its history, you have the Book of Mormon and its history, to tell us how things work, to, to show us how God does things, and how people relate to him, how people in each generation measure up or don't measure up to the Lord's expectations and what happens to each category of people. Moving on to Isaiah chapter 13, verses 4 and 5, quoted in 2 Nephi 23, destruction by a world war. And we've read this passage a couple of times before, but in different contexts, here we're talking about the utter destruction that is decreed upon the world. He goes on to say, Hark a tumult on the mountains as of a vast multitude, hark an uproar among kingdoms as of nations assembling. And we've seen before when we discussed the king of Assyria that he gathers an alliance of nations to come against God's people and to conquer the entire world. And it says, Jehovah of hosts is marshalling an army for war. So it's Jehovah's doing. He's the one who's behind it. 
And of course, he brings his people's enemies upon them when they are ripened in iniquity, as we've discussed in previous podcasts. So all of this is by design. The destruction is a consequence of people's breaking God's laws, his own covenant people, first of all, since they are the catalyst of the whole thing. And when they fail, then these things happen and God's judgments come upon the entire world in that order. They come from a distant land beyond the horizon, Jehovah and the instruments of his wrath to cause destruction throughout the earth. Like the ancient Assyrians who were the first military power to conquer the world, the ancient world by military force, so they do again in the end time. A latter-day king of Assyria leads this Assyrian alliance. And you can pretty well see today, if you watch the news carefully, that these powers are already lining themselves up for this very work. And then, of course, as the king of Assyria is a personification or personifies God's wrath, when it says Jehovah and the instruments of his wrath to cause destruction throughout the earth, it's the instruments of the king of Assyria. And what instruments does he have today with modern technology? Well, he has weapons of mass destruction that are becoming more and more sophisticated and can zero in on targets without anyone being able to stop them because they are hypersonic weapons now that can take out pretty well any city, any ship, or anything like that without anyone being able to stop them. The technology for stopping them hasn't been discovered yet. Not at that speed. Then we go on to Isaiah 14, verses 22 and 23, quoted in 2 Nephi 24. Babylon is swept clean. He says, I will rise up against them, says Jehovah of hosts. I will cut off Babylon's name and remnant, its offspring and descendants, says Jehovah. Now, we know from the book of Isaiah that there are only two entities, really, Babylon and Zion, in the end time when the world polarizes into these two camps. There is no more middle ground. And all celestial people and sons of perdition will be in the Babylon category. And all terrestrial people, those who are in a saved state but not yet exalted, and all celestial people who are the elect, who are in exalted status, in the exalted state, they will be saved out of it. But all celestials, all Babylon entity peoples will disappear from the earth and even from memory as the earth goes into a millennial state. He says, I will turn it into swamplands, a haunt for ravens. I will sweep it with the broom of destruction, says Jehovah of hosts. Now we know from the Book of Mormon, there's interesting terminology there, because these prophets of the Book of Mormon, they understood Isaiah very well. What does the Book of Ether say about this great evil warrior, Shiz? says, he sweepeth the earth before him. And that is exactly what's going on here. That he says, Jehovah says, I will sweep the earth with the broom of destruction. And the broom is another word for the king of Assyria. He's the broom that sweeps the earth. The wicked destroying the wicked. Now, we have this dichotomy between Babylon and Zion in the Book of Mormon. And Babylon is destroyed and Zion is delivered. That's part of the greater marvelous work, right? It's to bring God's people of the house of Israel to a Zion level and we Latter-day Saints kings and queens of the Gentiles if we fulfill our missions upon the earth help them to get there but the same imagery happens in the Book of Mormon where it speaks about the great and abominable church if you're not 
the church of the lamb, then you're church of the devil. So you have that same dichotomy, and these are the same entities just going by different names. And that is the beauty of the scriptures and, and the beauty of the book of Isaiah. Yeah, there are so many different names for the same entities, and you've got to figure them out. But the beauty of that is that each different name or persona helps explain the functions of that entity, the person or entity. And it gives some of the characteristics of that person, like the Lord's servant who has many personas, the king of Syria has many personas, the Lord's people have many personas, and so forth. And so does Babylon. It's also described by Nephi as the great and abominable church, the whore of all the earth. It's a whore in Isaiah, Babylon is, and it's a whore in the book of Revelation. All of these scriptures kind of cohere and harmonize with one another. It's a beautiful thing how the scriptures do this. But it makes us think. It makes us want to see what other attributes these entities have to give us a better idea of what is going on in the end time. Next we go to Isaiah 28, verses 21 through 22. And Jehovah decrees worldwide destruction. But this chapter is addressed specifically to Ephraim and its leaders. And the leaders, as we've seen before, scoff at the Lord's raising up a stone or a seer and instead make a covenant with death, make a covenant with the political establishment or whatever it may be, thinking that they could escape harm. So if you want to know the full account, read Isaiah 28 on your own. In a quick rundown, the people are not listening to personal revelation. They are still fixated upon the line-upon-line line principle, not moving on. And that's Isaiah's condemnation or God's condemnation of his people in that chapter. People are asked to consume half-digested material. <laughs> yeah, you'll, you'll read it. It's pretty graphic. Isaiah doesn't hold many bones back about God's people of Ephraim. So this chapter and this passage says in, in verses 21 and 22 of Isaiah 28, Jehovah will rise up as he did on Mount Pratsim. Mount Pratsim is when he broke upon the wicked in the Sinai wilderness, in fire and so forth. And bestirred to anger as in the valley of Gibbon, when he was angry with the Amalekites, and the sun stood still while Joshua and his army wiped them out. Only this time it's reversed, right? The king of Assyria is going to wipe out those apostates from among us. Instead of us being delivered, it is them being delivered as they wipe us out, so to speak to perform his act, his unwanted act, and do his work, his bizarre work, his work of destruction, that is. That's the other side of the coin of the great marvelous work. It's part of the great marvelous work. Therefore scoff not, speaking to the leaders of Ephraim, lest your bonds grow severe, that is, the bonds of iniquity, that hold them bound to their linear approach to things, to their narrow view, and not allowing the Lord's servants to tell them as they bring forth new records and so forth, they scoff at these things and they consider them not of God. And then, of course, the Lord grows angry with them. Therefore scoff not, lest your bonds grow severe, for I have heard utter destruction decreed by my Lord Jehovah of hosts upon the whole earth. And beginning with God's people, they are the catalyst. It starts with them. And moving on to the Book of Mormon, we have a look in First Nephi 14, verse 3. The great and abominable church fills the pit. So as we've discussed, all that is not Zion is Babylon, or is all that is not the church of the Lamb is the church of the devil. And that great pit, which has been digged for them, that is for God's covenant people, by that great and abominable church, which was founded by the devil and his children, 
that he might lead away the souls of men down to hell, yea, that great pit which has been digged for the destruction of men shall be filled by those who digged it unto their utter destruction. Of course, these are the secret combinations of the world today that seek to overthrow the freedom of all lands. They have digged this pit, but they themselves are going to fall into it eventually. Unto their utter destruction, said the Lamb of God, not the destruction of the soul, save it be the casting of it into that hell which has no end. Well, that is for those celestial people who are part of that Babylon entity. But, of course, there is a second death for sons of perdition. It's also called the pit of dissolution. So, you need to qualify that statement in the Book of Mormon. Of course, the majority, by far, are those who are cast into that hell that has no end. Not to stay there forever, as we learn from other scriptures, but after they have paid the price of their wickedness, their evil acts, then they may come out of that and inherit a resurrection of damnation, as it says in other scriptures. Then we go on to Mosiah chapter 12, verses 6 through 8, where Abinadi is prophesying, and it's a type of being destroyed from the earth, as he says concerning the Nephites. It shall come to pass that I will send forth hail among them, and it shall smite them, they also shall be smitten by the east wind, and insects shall pester their land and devour their grain, and they shall be smitten with a great pestilence. Look around in the news, and we see locusts everywhere throughout the earth. The east wind was a burning wind that just blasted everything, and of course hail has also been happening, and great hailstones are being sent forth today, larger than seems like ever before that are causing worldwide destruction, destruction in many lands around the world. And all this will I do because of their iniquities and abominations. It shall come to pass that except they repent, I will utterly destroy them from the face of the earth. Yet they shall leave a record behind them, this is the Nephites, and I will preserve them for other nations which shall possess the land. Yea, even this will I do to them that I may discover the abominations of this people to other nations. And many things did Abinadi prophesy against this people. The record, of course, is the Book of Mormon that they left behind that has all these things concerning the destruction of the Nephites and the destruction of the Jaredites and the warnings that were given by Book of Mormon prophets who saw our day of the same kinds of things happening in our day. What amazing series of types, what amazing prophecies we have in the Book of Mormon that enlighten us to such a degree we have really have no excuse. Next, we go to Alma, chapter 9, verses 18 and 19, a type of being utterly destroyed. Behold, I, that is Alma, say unto you, that if you persist in your wickedness, that your days shall not be prolonged in the land. That is, this persistence in wickedness, where they're given warning after warning, and the people don't repent. And we'll see this again in our day. History repeats itself. There's nothing new that happens that hasn't been of old. That which has been shall be. There's nothing new under the sun. In Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 9, he says, For the Lamanites shall be sent upon you. You need to ask, well, who is sending the Lamanites upon the Nephites? Well, of course, the Lord is. And who is going to send the Assyrian alliance upon us when we grow in wickedness? Well, the Lord is. It's all the Lord's doing. The Lord has this whole situation, the whole earth, and all its inhabitants in his hands. And he's in all the details. Whatever happens is a blessing or a curse 
according to the terms of God's covenant that he made from the beginning with Father Adam. And if ye repent not, they shall come in a time when you know not, and ye shall be visited with utter destruction, and shall be according to the fierce anger of the Lord. This when we think everything is fine, all is well in Zion, that's the time that things come unexpectedly. And look at the situation today. Did you expect the events that are happening today to come? Who expected this virus? Who expected this huge swarms of locusts all over the earth? Who expected these massive floods in China and elsewhere? Who has been expecting these things? It's suddenly come upon us and we're caught up in it and our freedoms are taken away in a measure and our lives are changed and who knows, but it'll never return to normal again. And of course, the fierce anger of the Lord of hosts in the end time is that king of Assyria who personifies God's anger and wrath. For he will not suffer you that ye shall live in your iniquities to destroy this people. Why, if we live in our iniquities, then we are destroying the next generation. And I say unto you, Nay, he would rather suffer that the Lamanites might destroy all his people who are called the people of Nephi, if it were possible that they could fall into sins and transgressions, after having had so much light and so much knowledge given unto them of the Lord their God. Yes, they were given exceedingly great light and knowledge, but so have we, Latter-day Saints, with the restoration of the gospel. So, in other words, we might apply this to ourselves, that after we have had so much light and so much knowledge given unto us from the Lord our God, he's not going to tolerate us sliding back into iniquity and into apostasy, not for very long. Let me go to Moroni chapter 9, verses 20 and 23. The Nephites before their destruction. Now this is Mormon speaking to Moroni. My son, I dwell no longer upon this horrible scene. Behold, thou knowest the wickedness of this people. Thou knowest that they are without principle and past feeling, and their wickedness doth exceed that of the Lamanites. Now, there are two things that show the character of the people of the Nephites before their destruction. They were without principle, and they were past feeling. And there's no convincing them at that point in time. It's like they have passed a point of no return. And their wickedness doth exceed that of the Lamanites. Behold, my son, I cannot recommend them unto God, lest he should smite me. In other words, he cannot be a proxy savior to them anymore, and you know that. He gave up leading them at some point when they became vengeful. They had a couple of successful battles against the Lamanites. Then they went after them and started attacking them in their lands. So, so long as they were fighting defensive wars, the Lord could be with them more or less, even if they were wicked, but not when they went out into aggressive wars. And we've seen that with this country uh, launching aggressive wars, and then we've seen the failure of those aggressive wars as the Lord has thrown us back. And these wars were failures, basically. I cannot recommend them to God, lest he should smite me. So he could not be a proxy savior to them. Even though they were under a collective Sinai covenant, he still wanted to act as a savior to them. And he was, to a great degree, at least the armies that he led, he could be a proxy savior for them. But he says, lest he should smite me, meaning, if I were to do so at this point in time, when they have passed the point of no return, then he will smite me because I will come under the curse. I will be, as it were, identifying with their cursed state and the Lord will smite me. I kind of wonder myself if Mormon didn't in the end relent anyway and 
serve as a proxy saver on behalf of those whom we might save out of the destruction, because the Lord did in the end smite him. At least Mormon was killed in battle, along with nearly all of the, the Nephites. Except 24 record keepers, I suggest that they were record keepers of the Nephite records who did survive and spirit the records away where they would be found later, because they knew that the Lamanites would destroy them. But behold, my son, I recommend thee unto God, and I trust in Christ that thou wilt be saved. Of course, Moroni was one of those saved, one of the very few. And so this came true, that Mormon kept God's law, and Moroni kept Mormon's law, so to speak, loyal son to his father. And I assume both were high priests after the holy order of God. That's not clear, but I assume they were considering other prophets in the Book of Mormon were. And of course, Mormon paid the ultimate price, but Moroni certainly was spared. And I pray unto God that he will spare thy life to witness the return of this people unto him or their utter destruction. For I know that they must perish, except they repent and return unto him. There you actually have repent and return in the same sentence. But in Hebrew, it's the same word. And if they perish, it will be like unto the Jaredites because of the willfulness of their hearts, seeking for blood and revenge, which at this point in time the Nephites were doing. So their willfulness. As I said, when people reach this stage, there's nothing you can say to them. Only an act of God could turn things around, possibly for them, because you cannot convince them anymore. And this is what we see in our society today. There are those who are so willful, so willfully evil, and so right in their own eyes, and everybody else is an awful creature, less than human or whatever. Anybody who doesn't agree with their agenda is to be cut down or to be got rid of, uh, to be slandered and calumnized and so forth. Yeah, we're there. So how can these things not happen to us in the very near future, I ask? All right, in summarizing, the Book of Mormon types confirm Isaiah's prophecies of an utter destruction that is worldwide that follows upon God's own people sinking into wickedness or sinking into iniquity. And the time frame is Book of Mormon times and also the time preceding the coming of Christ, as we've seen in others' prophecies of Isaiah that are quoted in the Book of Mormon or that the Book of Mormon prefigures through a series of their own historical types. And moving forward, are we prepared in the event utter destruction occurs in our day? It's been prophesied. But one of the things Nephi said, I think I've mentioned it, is you need not suppose that the Gentiles are utterly destroyed because there are those who say, well, the Gentiles will be destroyed too. But not utterly because the Lord will save out those who assume the role of saviors, kings and queens of the Gentiles, as we have seen before. Then next time, what defines greater things in God's words or scripture and what defines lesser things? Because these are spoken of in the Book of Mormon, and we're going to take a look and see what they actually say. And then recommended reading is End Time Prophecy or Judeo-Mormon Analysis. Thank you for listening today. Hope to catch you next time. Please share. Goodbye. Thank you for joining us today. Join us next time when we learn greater things and lesser things. Do Latter-day Saints realize the Book of Mormon contains mostly lesser things than God wants to give us? What must we do to qualify for greater things?